market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Connor Matchett. I'm the deputy political editor at the paper. And with me every week and this week is the political editor, Alistair Grant. Alistair, how are you doing? It's been a long political week, I think. Yeah, I'm good. It has been quite a long week. Quite a strange week. It's yeah. been busy, but not busy. Um, we'll, we'll jump straight into it and talk about a new story coming out of First Minister's Questions today, which is a rarity in itself, often, which was the revelation from Anasawa that councils are set to cut 7,100 full-time equivalent jobs if the budget, the 2023-24 budget, is passed in its current form. This is a warning, isn't it, from COSLA, the representative group of councils. Yeah, so this is obviously the draft Scottish budget, which was introduced before the end of last year. Uh, and is now kind of beginning its process of going going through Holyrood. Today, actually, on Thursday when we're recording this podcast, they've got the stage one debate, which is the first of the kind of three stages of the budget going through Holyrood. And because the SNP have a power-sharing agreement with the Greens, we've seen in the past kind of wrangling over the budget. There's been deals done at the last minute, um, question marks over, you know, last-minute horse trading. We won't have that this time just because it's widely expected just to go f- through quite straightforwardly because they've got the numbers with the SNP and the Greens. But there is this huge row with COSLA, the council umbrella body, which has been kind of having warnings over the last couple of weeks about the impact of the budget. It's extremely unhappy with the amount of money it's getting from the government. There's all sorts of different figures that get bandied around, but it is actually factually true to say that um, in kind of recent years under the SNP, councils have not had the, the amount of funding that the Scottish Government has seen its budget increase by has not been passed on to councils. Uh, it's probably the easiest way to put it. So today, at First Minister's questions, Anna Sawar, the Scottish Labour leader, was highlighting a leaked COSLA document. It's a local government finance update. I've just got it in front of me right now, um, which is basically talking about the impact of the budget on councils. And it says that it had a survey that went out to all the councils about the reductions that they would have to make 23 councils provided figures uh, and basically, out of 32, sorry, yeah, and basically said that they're expecting reductions of up to 5,400 full-time equivalent jobs across those 23 councils. Basically, by a process of extrapolation, COSLA has said that this kind of equates to 7,100 full-time equivalent reductions over the next three years. Yeah, so I think the important thing to say about this, which is in the, uh, the COSLA document, is that this could be concentrated in a certain number of councils. So, for example, four of them, I think, are reporting an expectation of zero full-time equivalent reductions as a, as a result of the, the Scottish budget. They're kind of managing savings in other ways. But that means that there could be more job losses at other councils. So it would have been good to have a kind of breakdown of that, but obviously we don't have that. The other thing to say is that uh, just over 1,750 of those job losses, those expected job losses, are concentrated in education. So it's quite badly impacted by this, but 
because of the amount of money it gets overall as this kind of slice of the council budgets, councils say they're kind of taking steps to ensure that actually education is less impacted than it might have been. And just finally, the document says that leisure, culture, sports and arts will be taking proportionately more than their fair share of these job losses. So it ties into these general concerns about the impact on councils of the Scottish budget because of the funding they've been allocated. Uh, and the other thing to say is that, as we've heard from COSLA before, um, council tax hikes are probably to be expected come April. Yeah, and I think Anna Saul brought it up, didn't he, in, in, at FNQs, and his, his line is something that we've heard from the Scottish Labour Party a lot. I think we'll probably hear it more over the coming months, given the tax rises that are going to be in this this budget. His line is that the SNP are asking people to pay more for less. And it does it does kind of fit with that. You know, it's it's services that people have become accustomed to. And it also attacks, arguably, the SNP's kind of core middle class vote that has oft, so often bankrolled it through the last 15 years of power. Those people who, you know, value competency, value things happening for them and value good public services. That's where... Labour, in particular, seem to feel like there's an opportunity to be dug out for them. Yeah, so one of the things that Anna Sarwar said that I think we should probably expect him to say again and again as we approach the, the kind of final vote in the budget is that Scots are facing a double whammy, mm-hmm. potentially. You've got council tax hikes, potentially expected, uh, and also income tax rises as part of that budget. So it is this kind of concept, like you say, of getting less, getting less for your money, essentially. And you're quite right that these are services that people have relied on. And in previous years, we are we are used to this standoff now between COSLA and the Scottish Government. But I think we, we probably have approached the point now where where those cuts can be made, they have been made, and that this will start to affect services. I mean, it's one of the things that uh, Nicola Sturgeon always says when this is brought up, that during this part of the year, the run-up to the budget going through, there's often stories about councils having to sell off buildings, shut down leisure centres, mm-hmm. close libraries because, you know, of the sheer lack of funding they're facing. And not all those things end up happening because that's just part of the whole horse trading process. Threats are made, you know, warnings are made, they don't always happen. I think that's true, but when you look at these figures, they are quite drastic. And it's also the case that in the kind of Scottish government's more long-term spending plans that we saw a couple of months ago now, I think, uh, there is actually baked into that an expectation that the public sector will be reduced down to, I think they said, pre-COVID levels. Yeah. And that involves losing job jobs in the public sector. So it's almost a kind of deliberate thing that the public sector will be reduced to some degree. Yeah, because that was a 30, that was set out by Kate Forbes in a research funding review last year. 30,000 jobs across the public sector would be lost through pure management is the, is the line. So no compulsory redundancies. And that yeah, people thing. leaving naturally, yeah. all this kind Restrictions of Restrictions yeah. on recruitment and things yeah. like that. Um, going back to... FMQs, the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon's response is to go and turn it back on Labour and the Tories whenever they bring up, you know, restricted funding and go, well, tell us, tell us as the government where you would find this money. Do you think that works as a response? Because I think I think a lot of people will listen to this and go, you know, it's bad. We reckon, I think particularly people in Edinburgh and in the big cities where we've had strikes and it was particularly bad in Edinburgh during the council workers' strike over the fringe driving around the city there's potholes everywhere you know people do think i think recognize that services have declined arguably do you think going well tell us where the money would be found to improve things works do you think that that lands 
Uh, I think it maybe works to a partial degree in the sense that you can try and paint your op- your opponents, people like Anna Sarwar, as kind of amateurs in a way because mm. they're unserious. They're just, yeah, they're just making criticisms, but they're kind of yeah, like you say, uns- unserious about it because they're not putting forward their own suggestions of where this money is going to come from. And one of the Scottish government's favourite phrases, as we both know, is that they have to balance the budget. Mm-hmm. So they have to find money from elsewhere if they want to inject into certain areas of the budget. But it's also true that it is, you know, the opposition, the opposition, sorry, it's their job to look for holes and look for things that could be done better. And it's the government's job to come up, come up with these kind of, this balanced budget. And it's also the case that the Scottish government's, Scotland's budget in general is so complicated mm-hmm. in the sense of, you know, where the money comes from. It's got more and more complicated as the years have gone on and the kind of Barnett formula and the way that the interaction between devolved powers and reserve powers and where that money comes from, that it's something that people like the Fraser of Allender Institute, the Economic Research Institute at Strathclyde University have pointed out, that if you actually want to fully understand the budget, where money's coming from and how much money there is in certain areas, it is extremely hard to get there. And they could, something could be done, I think, to make that easier and make it more digestible for people. But, you know, it's, it's part of, like I say, it's just part of a, a strategy to paint opposition politicians as kind of taking easy pot shots of the government without doing the hard legwork. Yeah, if, I mean, if you at home are listening and you, you think you understand the fiscal framework, do let us know, because I don't think anyone in this building does without a significant degree of economics. No one understands it. And you go through the budget documents and they're just completely impenetrable sometimes. And the whole process, the whole system has become so overly complicated that it's actually impacting on transparency, I think. Absolutely. Let, let's, let's talk a little bit about a related issue which is we had strikes in Holyrood yesterday there were parliamentary workers who were employed by the Scottish parliamentary corporate the Scottish parliamentary corporate body who were striking outside you also had civil servants across the UK striking over pay and we've got the budget stage 1 today and we still don't know the government's position on public sector pay for the coming year 2324 now we know that there are ongoing strikes in Scotland over over pay, in particular with teachers. But we don't know what a massive part of the budget is going to look like um, at this point. That, that's quite a big problem for, I think, for the MSPs in, in, in there today, supposedly having to vote through, you know, the basic principles of the bill. I think part of the problem as well is that we don't know when we will actually find that out. I think when John Swinney introduced the budget last year, he said something along the lines of, because of all these ongoing pay dis- disputes, he wouldn't bring that forward at the moment, but they have a update at some point in the new year, I think he said, it was, which yeah. is just incredibly vague. And I, I mean, I asked the government today for an update and the answer was there isn't one. Yeah. It's like, you know, we're in February now, the, gov- the budget is usually passed, I think, by the end of March. Yeah. And I think you were talking to union officials outside Parliament uh, yesterday on Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. They were making points about this. So Joy Dunn, who's an industrial officer at the PCS union, represents civil servants. You know, I asked her, you know, is it, is it a problem for workers? You know, people think this is, this is a, I think some people think that the lack of this sort of detail is a, is kind of unimportant for the, for the people who are actually affected. But the thing to remember is that if you're in the private sector, you tend to know if you're going to get a pay rise or not. It, it tends to be, you know, Pre, pre-ordained often or potentially outlined and or you assume that you're just not going to get one. In the public sector for the last 
for however long I can remember, it's usually set out a good six or seven months beforehand. It's particularly important for workers during the cost of living crisis when even a 2% pay increase, which was would be a, what I think most people would have taken for the last 10 years or so during austerity, even though that's piddling, it's very little, um, it still helps. I think workers, certainly Joy Dunn was saying to me yesterday that workers feel like they can't plan ahead past April. They still haven't had a pay award for this financial year. We may end up in a situation where there is a pay deal agreed for, say, I don't know, number off the top of my head, 8% for the PCS union workers and maybe similar for teachers. And then April the 1st comes and the whole process starts over again. If the government come forward with a 2% minimum pay offer, there'll be strike action next year. It, it seems to me like a, a really glaring omission from, from the current budget. Yeah, yeah. And it's part of this whole process. I think when actually we were talking about the strikes last year, and I think I'm right in saying that the, the teachers, when they were talking about the strike dispute last year, is for the, year the pay that they were offered the year before. So you get this incredible backdating of pay and strikes referring to pay deals that were offered, you know, it's just it becomes quite complicated. And I mean, teachers are on strike as we speak in certain local authorities in Scotland for a pay deal that they initially rejected in April 2022, which is what, uh, my maths isn't great, nine months ago? Um, it seems insane that they, the government haven't managed to get a deal over the line when they knew that this was coming. Anyway, we'll move on and we'll give you the latest dispatch from Westminster, from our Westminster correspondent, Alexander Brown, who's going to take us through some of the sleaze and the controversies in Westminster. Hello and welcome back to the Westminster section of the podcast. My name is Alexander Brown. I'm the paper's Westminster correspondent. And it has been yet another difficult week for the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Firstly, he had to sack Zahawi since we last spoke, which obviously didn't come as much surprise given that he breached the ministerial code seven times and repeatedly refused to disclose that he was being investigated for his taxes, instead saying that he was just, you know, having correspondence with the tax office. How could he have known? In his letter after being fired, he made zero mention of the fact that he'd broken, you know, he'd misbehaved, shows zero contrition. And instead just had a go at what he called the fourth estate journalists for having temerity to suggest he was under pressure. I think his issue was the phrase the news titans, which obviously is a phrase and not a literal thing. But it's easier to talk about than to talk about that and say, file your taxes properly. Beyond that, there is the ongoing investigation into Dominic Raab over bullying allegations. PMQs this week, the Prime Minister stood up and said, you know, he acts quickly and he dealt with Zawahi and, uh, you know, he is bringing integrity back to government, which is very, very difficult when he sat next to a Deputy Prime Minister who has, so far, we understand, 24 allegations of bullying levied against him. This, combined with a refusal from the Prime Minister to disclose what he knew about the bullying allegations, when he knew about them, it was, it was interesting that Downing Street pointedly could only say they didn't know that any formal allegations had been made. That was new information, which suggests they knew that they were complaints or rumours, but not anything formal. That's a clear language both from the Prime Minister and Downing Street is official spokesman. So there is a clearly a line being formed there to try and get out of it, which is just really ugly. The Labour leader, Sakir Starmer at PMQs, tried to 
you know, I've tried to talk about this and talk about bringing back integrity to Parliament and poor behaviour. And the Prime Minister went, you know, look, I dealt with it. The difference is, you know Jeremy Corbyn. You didn't do anything about that. And, oh, Rosie Duffield, your own MP, said that being in Labour is like being in an abusive relationship, which is a pretty disgusting comparison anyway, and just doesn't really answer any of the questions. He refused to answer what he knew. So this newfound uh, integrity and getting rid of Boris Johnson's style of <laughs> debate seems to have gone completely out the window. So you've got all the, you know, slur and whataboutery in the Boris Johnson, but none of the positive polling. So it's not very good for the Conservatives. It's uh, not very good at all. And I spoke to quite a few Tory MPs this week, and they are had one say. They were actually looking forward to the general election because they could get rid of some of the rubbish and maybe have a good uh, a good look at what the party could be again. And these are people, not necessarily who are who are against the party normally. These are not like outspoken distance. These are people who just you know small C Conservatives who want the party to govern, maybe liked it under Cameron, not so and also under Theresa May. And they just want their party back. And I think there was a belief among the ones I've spoken to that things would be better under Rishi Sunak. And that just has not happened. So pretty grim for the Conservatives. The polling continues to be a disaster. And the week finished with <laughs> Rishi Sunak in speaking to Piers Morgan, being asked such difficult questions such as, are you stinky stinking rich? Which isn't a question, it's just saying that he's got money. So I just want to thank Piers Morgan for giving us such fantastic news to write about. Oh, the man we know as a billionaire is uh, rich. More as we get it. That's it from me. So until next time, I've Lance on the Brown. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much, Alex, for that update. Um, you can read more from Alex on scotsman.com about the ongoing controversies involving Dominic Raab and Nadim Zahawi. We promised that we'd come back to what was brought up by Douglas Ross during First Minister's Questions, which is the ongoing fallout from the Isla Bryson case, which involved a double rapist being sent to a women's jail while a risk assessment was being undertaken by the Scottish Prison Service and we are led to believe the First Minister didn't interfere but did interfere and got the policy changed and various other things have happened since. Uh, so take us through what Douglas Ross went in on at FMQ today because it's moved on a little bit from that kind of initial uproar around the decision. Yeah, so this is the second FMQ that Douglas Ross has gone in on this issue. Uh, as you say, relating to the Isla Bryson case, it obviously comes uh, amid this kind of wider debate we're having in Scotland. We had the... Uh, gender recognition legislation passed in Holyrood just before Christmas. Uh, we've then had the kind of row with the UK government blocking that, uh, using Section 35 of the Scotland Act to kind of block it getting royal assent. And that's turned into a constitutional row. In this case, Isla Bryson came at this incredibly politically potent time. So like you say, double rapist initially moved to Cornton Vale and Stirling, women's prison. Then after a huge backlash, was moved to HMP Edinburgh, a kind of male prison wing. And today, Douglas Ross was essentially, I think, trying to corner Nicola Sturgeon on the, the Scottish government's policy of self-ID. That's the kind of, in the broad sense, a policy that would allow a trans person to change their gender without having to get a diagnosis of medical medical dysphoria and without having to go through that medicalised process that existed before. 
And he was attempting to corner on that by basically asking the question, does Nicola Sturgeon think that Isla Bryson is a man or a woman? And it's safe to say that Nicola Sturgeon tried to avoid answering that question. Uh, in fact, pretty much did avoid answering it. Yep. Essentially said that she said that she sees Isla Bryson as a rapist yep. and that that is the description that she would use. I think she said that she didn't have enough information to say if her claim to be a woman was true or not, which seems like a bit of a get out clause. But then later on, Douglas Ross read out a statement from one of Isla Bryson's victims in which they basically essentially said, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, that um, Isla Bryson's claim to be transgender was untrue um, and that they were kind of playing everyone. It was nonsense, essentially. And Nicola Sturgeon said that she uh, almost certainly thinks that is the case. So after quite a few attempts by Douglas Ross, we did eventually get to a position where Nicola Sturgeon essentially said that Isla Bryson isn't really transgender, but she was deeply unwilling to get dragged into this question of whether or not Isla Bryson is a man or a woman uh, and essentially didn't answer it directly. Uh, and I think it just shows what a kind of complicated and difficult issue this is becoming for the Scottish government, has been for the Scottish government for the past, I can't even remember how far we are into the story now, certainly for the, a week and a half or at something least, like that, yeah, I think. two weeks almost. I mean, I was at an event on Monday where Nicola Sturgeon was doing a tour of uh, BBC Studio Works, these new TV studios in Glasgow. And essentially, the event was all about that. It was meant to be all about that, in the kind of TV screen sector in Scotland. But every journalist there just repeatedly asked about gender issues uh, and the Isla Bryson case. It just completely overwhelmed the whole event. Um, and it's just become something that uh, I think is, yeah, it's just landing the government in quite a lot of, quite a lot of difficulty. And I think probably has cut through to an extent that the gender recognition legislation maybe never did. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people maybe weren't aware of that debate to a great extent as it was going through Holyrood, although it was, you know, I'm not saying it wasn't controversial, it was hugely controversial. There's protests outside parliament, people like J.K. Rowling uh, making their views known. But I think if you've got headlines like Nicola Sturgeon refusing to directly answer whether a double rapist is a man or a woman, I think that probably has quite a large degree of cut through. I don't know what you think about it. I, I still think that this general topic of politics has yet to shift votes. I'll put it that way. I think cut through is different to shifting votes because I think it definitely has cut through. I think there's people who, as you say, you know, maybe were vaguely aware of the gender recognition reform process and that controversy around transgender rights. Particularly, I think it's picked up in the UK press UK-wide press, you know, like The Times and, and The Telegraph, more in the last year or so than it probably did before that. I think that coincides with Kemi Badnock's kind of rise to prominence as well in the UK government. But I think the UK press's interest in Isla Bryson has tipped the scale, if you like, in terms of cut-through. You know, you had, for the first time, really, UK newspapers across the board, you know, being interested in a specific case and linking it to Scottish legislation, even though, you know, GRR, it's not in force, it's got nothing to do with what's this happened in terms of what the process is, although it feeds into the wider debate. I think, I do, I do think that it's yet to have switched anybody over from the SNP to, say, Labour or the SNP to the Conservatives, A, because Scotland is so in, so obviously divided by the Constitution and has been for at the very least eight years, if not longer, that that sort of policy 
you tend to see people fall in behind the people that they already agree with. So I think there'll be a lot of SNP voters out there who are going, do you know what, this is a very very nuanced and complex view and I agree with the First Minister that, you know, a rapist isn't a woman but we can't, you know, suggest that all trans people are, are a danger and the Tory voters in the country will be looking at it and going, do you know what, this is ridiculous, why can't she just say that this is this this man is a man, etc. And I think Labour voters as well and Liberal Democrat voters, if you want to put them in, you know, both Labour and the Lib Dems voted for the for the GRR. There are very strongly held views, but ultimately, I don't think it changes how people vote. Having said that, we've not seen a poll, certainly since the GRR passed. The last poll, I think, in Scotland was either hours for by Savanta just before Christmas, potentially one after. I can't quite remember, but in essence, we haven't had a a, a poll in the recent week or two about voting intention when it comes to which would take into account all of the stuff around the Isla Bryson case that would be telling the thing that I, I do think is the case is you can tell that Nicola Sturgeon's kind of political capital is really hurt by this she's expending so much of it on what is ultimately an issue that really only resonates strongly with younger more liberal voters now I think the reality check for our for you know older people who maybe are more engaged in politics in terms of reading the newspapers and voting is that the SNP is a young party its activists are young its membership is generally younger than other parties Nicola Sturgeon has developed her policy background and her policy positions on maintaining the demographic benefit of younger people coming to the SNP coming over to independence and then sticking with them until they get older and even when they get older. And I think as long as that's still happening, the SNP won't, won't, won't be concerned. I certainly think that, um, I mean, you're right, there's a difference between cut through and people actually switching their votes. I think there'll be a huge group of people who look at this issue and think, you know, for example, today it's, it's ridiculous that Nicola Sturgeon couldn't answer that question, but they will remain SNP supporters. Absolutely. It's not going to yeah. make them change to the Conservatives or Labour because, like you say, Scotland is completely divided on the constitution and the Tories are the only ones that uh, are quite comfortable making this an issue. Yeah. You know, Labour don't want to talk about it either no. because they have their own divisions on it and uh, their own kind of unwillingness to get entangled in this debate. You can see that with the comments that Keir Starmer has made around it. They have their own slightly nuanced approach to it, I think. I'm going to be brutally honest here and say the most likely party to lose votes for this is the Scottish Labour Party. And you know, I think that's patently obvious that they know it too, because they hate talking about it. Ian Murray as Scottish Sec and Anna Sawa as, you know, Scottish Labour leader want to be talking about anything other than GRI. They want to be talking about finance. They want to be talking about the NHS. They want to be talking about council cuts and council services, because ultimately Labour and the Tories are fishing from the same pool of, in terms of the constitutional vote. And if Labour sit on one side of the GRR fence and the Tories are shouting as loudly as possible, you might end up with Labour voters going to the Tory vote on the back of this. I don't think you'll see SNP voters going to the Tory benches or the Tory, Tory party on the back of this. That's just my, my view. A poll could come out tomorrow and you know, completely show that I'm talking complete nonsense, <laughs> which is always possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Myrtle Fraser, the Conservative MSP, had written a written a column actually in the Scotsman, mm -hmm. I think in which he suggested that this was 
Nicola Sturgeon's poll tax moment uh, in the sense that it's something that true believers uh, can understand where she's coming from and think it's the right thing to do, but everyone else doesn't really get and is against. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, yeah, perhaps wishful thinking. I don't actually think he's actually wrong. What I would say is that the Constitution trumps all when it comes to voting intention in this country. Yeah, well, I mean, I think calling it a poll tax moment would suggest that it's going to lead to Nicola Sturgeon's imminent. Yeah, but I think as well you have to remember with, with, with the poll tax is that there wasn't a overriding divide above and beyond just Tory Labour at that point. So a policy, a policy intervention like that would have been key to changing votes because, you know, what else is there between Labour and the Conservatives at the time? You know, the Conservatives had come forward with something other than poll tax, would it have had the same impact on voter behaviour? Probably not. If it had been in 2017 and some sort of big constitutional argument over Brexit, I think something like the poll tax would have snuck through. I think you've seen that in the UK Parliament under Boris, to be honest. Yeah. I don't want to get into the history of the poll tax, but it was no. obviously it was a, a reaction to something that was already unpopular as it was. Anyway, it's probably <laughs> not worth getting, uh, getting too much into that comparison. But I think there is a sense of uh, her opponents seeing this as the beginning of the post-Nicola Sturgeon era, the beginning of her downfall. I mean, I think it's probably self-evidently true to say that Nicola Sturgeon is already sort of on the way out in the sense that I think the expectation is that she will not, well, potentially won't lead the SNP into the next Hollywood election. And even if she does, she won't stay in power much beyond that because I think she is. she does have one eye on the exit. And issues like this probably add to that sense of uh, her just getting fed up. She is no longer the future. Tragic. <laughs> That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much at home for listening to us. You can, of course, find out exactly when the Steamy goes live by signing up to the Scotsman's political newsletter. All you have to do is go to scotsman.com slash newsletter, enter your email address, scroll down the list and click on politics which is the third one there are also options to sign up for opinion history and heritage art and culture scottish football and of course everyone's favorite golf um please do keep listening in and uh, thank you very much for listening thank you very much alistair for joining us as well and speak to you next week bye bye